Good morning, everyone. Welcome, and uh, let me go ahead and begin our time by going to the Lord in prayer together. Let's pray. God, thank you that we can come together this morning and uh, come around your word and learn what you have to say, what you have revealed to us, your timeless, unchanging truth, and its ever-relevant nature. We're so grateful that you've given it to us, and we thank you that we can come to it and understand how to think rightly about the world around us, uh, that we can cut opinions out of the picture and put biblical truth and precepts and wisdom into practice. We pray that you would use this, uh, use this study about government, the things that you have ordained, even if you're not always delighted in the way that people do it, uh, to help us to please you and help us have confidence, help us to trust in your perfect sovereign will to carry out your purposes in the world, all while we try to do what you've told us to do. And we pray that you give us insight and wisdom into understanding what your word has to say about these matters. We pray that our morning together would be exalting to you, that the things that are going on in other places here with uh, the various classes and even the quiz practice, that you would help them to learn the word of God as well, and that you would make it uh, life-changing, heart-changing truth that would bring glory to your name. And we pray that that would happen here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to continue our study about the government and the Christian life, and we're looking this morning at the second part of what government should be, as well as talking then after we finish that on what the government should do. Now, this will be just a high-level instruction about what the government should do, and we'll get into some more particular details about that as we go forward, and then also talk about our role as Christians in trying to get the government to do what the government should do. Uh, I want to review what we looked at last week briefly, which is just that we talked about the government's structure. What structure should government have according to the Bible? And we considered a few types of government structures in general, everything from monarchy to democracy to anarchy, and uh, considered what the governmental structure was in Old Covenant Israel that there were a few various types of structure that took place. Uh, It began with Moses and Joshua, one succeeding the other, and uh, kind of as a single leader under the rule of God who led them out of the land of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. Then there was something of a pure theocracy where God was the ruler, even though he had set up rulers and structures within the nation, but there was no absolute leader. There was no king or anything like that. It was just God as the ruler until Israel ultimately rejected God as that at the latter end of the time of the judges. Uh, The time of the judges consisted of some single rulers who would be raised up by God in the aftermath of Israel's unrepentance or Israel's sin. And then they're uh, being handed over into the hands of foreign enemies. They were taken captive. They were oppressed. They would cry out to the Lord and the Lord would send a deliverer, a judge. Someone who was a little bit different than what we think of as a judge, more of a uh, military leader, but someone who would come and who would basically lead the nation as an individual person. But they were always for a season, they were always kind of as needed, that was never meant to be the final form of uh, of Israel's rule. And there were a series of them that took place that led the nation over the course of a few hundred years, um, culminating in Samuel, and then Samuel's sons would have been perhaps appointed or they were um, they at least were in line in some way and the people said these guys are corrupt they don't walk in your ways Samuel um, give us a king like the nations around us and God stated this rightly as a rejection of his rule 
And yet he did go with what they said. He gave them a king, Saul and then David and then Solomon and then the divided kingdom after that. And God ultimately, even though the people wanted to reject him through having a king, God ultimately de uh, desired to rule the people through a king, through a mediator on the earth, whom we know will be finally the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there was also a section of Israel's history, well, really, uh, that is still ongoing whenever the nation is uh, existing as a nation state, and it is uh, post-monarchy. Israel was governed after their exile. Uh, they had no king, and in fact, that was promised that they would go without a king for many days, and that was the case, and that was the case when Jesus showed up on the scene that there had not been a king, an actual king, according to the line of David's throne, the way that God had prescribed it to be for a very, very long time. So lots of different government structures under the Old Testament. Um, they weren't all prescriptive. There wasn't just one way that was supposed to be. Ultimately, God did say, I'm going to give you a king, and this is the way that your government is supposed to be set up, and he is supposed to rule. But as far as the actual nature of the governmental system itself, there was nothing that was said in those times or under the law that would indicate that there's a required form of government for all the nations or for those that are not specifically given a promise of a Davidic ruler and instructions by God to that end. Which is simply to say there is no prescription for government structure found by virtue of the way that the Old Testament people of Israel did it. Uh, we consider the government structure for God's earthly kingdom, which is a little bit different than what we might think that we want here. The structure will be uh, at, at the end of the day, whatever the substructure of government is, it will be an absolute dictatorship where Jesus Christ rules and he is the one who is completely in charge. All the branches of government are vested in him and he is the one who makes all the final decisions on everything. Now, if that were anybody besides Jesus, we might get pretty scared about that. And for those who don't love Jesus, that's pretty scary as well. This is why they rebel against him and it's why Psalm 2 says that the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed. They view his rule as bonds and shackles to be broken off. But for those who know and love him and those who know and love the truth, the government structure where Christ is in charge of everything is the perfect government. And he has the wisdom to set it up in the way that's best. And then he employs his people in carrying out the administrative rule of that government as well, as we looked at in 1 Corinthians 6, for example. And we're told that we will reign with him. Um, we looked at God's requirements for government structure, which is basically there's not one in terms of uh, actually the way that we set it up. There's no form of government, whether monarchy, democracy, anything like that, that the Bible prescribes for nations outside of Israel. And there is no, um, so there's, there's a lot of flexibility there. So when we think about how we should, if we were given the option to set up a government structure with the Bible as our instruction manual, then we can apply biblical wisdom to that government structure. And what we considered mainly with that was how do we mitigate the effect of human depravity on governance? So in terms of governing the people and recognizing the depravity that people have who are being governed and then also recognizing the depravity that people have who are in government or who would want to get into government 
And we considered a few things as far as uh, helping to govern without abusing power. Some of the ways that people have tried when they recognize man's sinfulness or his potential corruption. uh, Ways that people have tried over the years to do that, such as separation of powers, uh, democracy, democratic rule. um, Trying to really emphasize the rule of law and making sure that uh, governing authorities cannot go against the law that they themselves are supposed to be representing. Uh, But at the end of the day... What we found is that all of these efforts are wisdom attempts. All of them have some flaw or another that keeps them from being perfect. And that governmental structure is, uh, really it brings no possible perfect cure for the problems that are caused by the sinfulness and the finiteness of man. There is no perfect way to set it up. Now I think the implication of that ought to be when you're thinking about how you Uh, want the government to be do you want the government to be bigger do you want it to be smaller do you say it should do this to stop these things from happening or it should do this to make these things happen realize that there will never reach a point where you won't be able to look at the government and say you know I think they could be doing better or I think that this problem still needs to be fixed so when we let our hearts be discontent and unhappy or find someone to blame because the government is not operating operating the way that it ought to just recognize there's never going to be a solution on that end of things that stops that for you there will always be something wrong that you could be unhappy about so before you let that just run wild make sure that you uh, that you recognize that particular thing Uh, all right so let's jump into what we want to talk about this morning which would be government officials and government activity so what should the people be like who are in authority in the government and i just want to give you a few characteristics of god-pleasing rulers starting in second samuel 23 second samuel 23 some of the characteristics of god-pleasing rulers uh, I, I don't think this is going to be an exhaustive look at everything that someone like this might be But there are some things that scripture points out in particular by way of precept or by example. So first of all, uh, 2 Samuel 23, let me read the first four verses. We'll pull a couple of things from here. Uh, Now these are the last words of David. David the son of Jesse declares, The man who was raised on high declares, The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules over men, uh, excuse me, who rules in the fear of God is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. What do you notice here that would be a characteristic, a character attribute of a God-pleasing ruler, of a good ruler? What do you see in verses three and four? The fear of God. Yes, the fear of God. Now, one more major thing. What else is there? Yeah, he lives righteously. He rules righteously. So he who rules over men righteously and he rules in the fear of God. So these two things are really important for a ruler. He rules in righteousness. And we'll see in a little bit the opposite of this, of what the government shouldn't do. It shouldn't Um, People who are in government authority should not sin in their personal conduct. They shouldn't act unjustly. They shouldn't mistreat people, in particular God's people. But they should act righteously. They should do what is right. And they please God when they do what is right in that particular office. Um, The fear of God. The fear of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 19 adds something to this. And you can look there with me as well if you'd like. 
fact, uh, yeah, actually, that would be helpful to do that if you would turn there. Deuteronomy uh, 17, verse 14. Remember, this is before they even enter the land, before the judges have even happened, long before the monarchy. He says, when you, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, this is Moses speaking to Israel on the verge of going in, uh, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself. Or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now, there are some things he's not supposed to accumulate here. You can see that horses, like military might, uh, don't even go back to Egypt to do this. Don't have a lot of wives. Your heart will turn away, which is exactly what happened to King Solomon later on. Solomon was turned away to worship other gods by virtue of this. It wasn't the uh, intrinsic nature of marrying multiple wives itself. That's a whole other issue. But he's saying there are some things that a king will be tempted to do because of the power that he has that are going to cause him to forsake his responsibility as the, Lord, as the leader over this particular nation of Israel. So those are some things that are specific there that would be wise practices perhaps in many ways for other rulers. But uh, there's, there's a, a special emphasis on this in this context for a king over this nation. Now, he says, when, it come, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. We talked about righteousness already as a characteristic from 2 Samuel 23, and then also the fear of God. And of course, the way to get the fear of God, he says here, is to read God's word all the days of his life and carefully do everything that's in it. This is the way he cultivates the fear of God. Um, what benefit would the fear of God have for a ruler? It's there in 2 Samuel 23. It's here in Deuteronomy 17. What benefit would the fear of God have? Yes, Stephen. Yeah, bring refreshment to them, like 2 Samuel 23, 4. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Why else, how else is a, a fear of God, or a God-fearing ruler, how is that beneficial? Yeah, Kaylee. Wisdom, mm-hmm. Yeah, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? How are you going to understand the way the world works and what to do if you don't fear God? Yeah, you're already starting from the wrong track. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, thinking about eternal consequences of, of all that you do. Yeah, yeah, Jillian. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, prideful. Yep, that's absolutely. They become very, they become very, very proud. And uh, this is this is a, a couple other components that are here that I want to highlight, which is first of all, humility before God, and then secondly, humility, uh, humility toward the people. You see that that he that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. We talk about using authority and using uh, governmental power for serving yourself. That's part of how this happens is you start to think that you're more important than them, that they don't matter. Um, and it's just very interesting the way that he says to prevent that is that you are humble and you cultivate a fear of the Lord. When you fear the Lord, then you see yourself not as uh, in a category above everybody else because you're in office above them, but you see them as simply someone else who is ser- uh, tasked with responsibility to care for them and to lead them, but among the same level as everyone else. Uh, if you don't fear the Lord, then you exalt yourself. And then if you exalt yourself, you think you're in more of a special class than somebody else, then you know, you're not going to care so much what happens to them. You're only going to care what happens to you, and you're going to be self-serving. Uh, so yes, uh, hum- brings humility toward God, toward the people. Uh, what else does the fear of God do that makes you a better ruler? Who do people today who are, are politicians, who do they fear? They, yeah, they pretty much fear the ones that are going to vote against them. Now, there may be more than that, but I'm just saying in general, probably the biggest fear that they have is being, being ousted from office. So it's the kind of people who would get them out. So what that means is that uh, they're going to be controlled by that. Uh, the fear of the Lord means there are a lot of components to it but one of them means that your your thinking and your conduct is controlled by what god thinks about you and that doesn't always mean that you're um, so fear fearing the lord means when you are uh, when you're not a christian it means that you're driven to him you fear the judgment that he brings you recognize his power and you recognize that you're in trouble because of that power that his wrath is against you and that you have made an enemy out of god toward yourself and so you run to him and you, you're driven to Christ because you properly fear him. Uh, when you have been saved, God is, you fear God in ways that are still very real. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He talks about not trying to fear man, but pleasing uh, God instead. So when you try to fear God and when you cultivate a fear of God, then you're worried what God thinks about you, even if you know his love, even if you know his care, even if you know that he is for your good. First Peter 1 talks about this where it says that if you address as father, uh, verse 17, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So he says, you know him as father, you have this relationship to him, so, but you should still be deeply concerned about pleasing him and what he thinks about you. So yeah, the fear of the Lord is going to control your conduct. And what that's going to result in is instead of worrying, you know, what can this, if I'm a, a judge and I fear God, I'm not worried about what this guy can bribe me with to win the case or to be favorable toward him. I'm worried about what does God say is right in this situation. If I'm fearing God as a judge, I'm not worried about what will people think when I pass a sentence against this person who is guilty despite coming from hard circumstances. I'm going to pass the judgment that is right, even if people will be unhappy with me about this. That's what fearing God does. It means you're not concerned about what happens afterward. You, you know that there could be consequences. You, you're aware of that. You don't necessarily like that. 
but you do what's right before God rather than what's just right before the people. It means that when you try to pass a law or when you do anything that has to do with that, you're doing it because you think that it pleases God, not because it's just what everybody wants. So the fear of the Lord is going to enable you to be impartial. Uh, it will enable you to resist bribery, which is something that's repeated over and over in Scripture as a, a powerful tool. Um, Solomon is not necessarily commending it, but he does talk about how influential it is and how, being, uh, how practicing the fear of the Lord will prevent you from being vulnerable to such things, to such efforts. So yeah, fearing God. So righteousness, fearing God, uh, humility before God. And humility toward the people. I want to look at one more passage that talks about humility before God to show that this extends out beyond Israel. Daniel chapter 4. And of course, Daniel 4 is, uh, it is a passage that is about Daniel's interaction with Nebuchadnezzar. Largely, it is the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's a proclamation to the nations about what happened to him when he was proud in his heart. And he... Uh, he received a vision about a tree, and then the tree was cut down, and um, the stump was left, and then Nebuchadnezzar ultimately exalted himself and was driven away from everybody, and he spent seven years like a cow, uh, just eating grass from the field until God graciously restored him. But he makes this declaration, verse 34, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of, the heaven, in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is what God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to learn. This is what his descendant, Belshazzar, did not learn in Daniel 5, even though he knew all of what had happened. That's what Daniel told him. Um, he, he said, um, verse 20 of chapter 5, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. Uh, he was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beasts. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. So you have this uh, understanding that Nebuchadnezzar came to. His son, Belshazzar, or his descendant, did not uh, did not understand this or did not follow this even though he knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar in his pride and God is teaching this lesson that rulers are supposed to be humble this is the message of Psalm 2 where he says kiss the son or do homage to the son the nations rage against the Lord and against Christ they say we don't want to be ruled by them and God says well you better change your mind you better humble yourself before the Lord. Whatever authority you have, whatever empire you're over, whatever nation you're in charge of, you are not the ultimate ruler and you need to humble yourself before God and say, someone has put me here who is not 
another man. Someone has put me in this office and I need to humble myself before him. And what this teaches us then from the book of Daniel is that this is applicable to all rulers across all the world. They are all supposed to do this. They are all supposed to bow before their creator. They are supposed to be humble before God. And it's no excuse that they're not part of Israel as a nation. They are supposed to humble themselves before God as they rule. So whatever rulers there are in Knoxville, Knox County, Tennessee, the United States of America, they are supposed to fear God. They're supposed to care what he thinks. And we should want them to do this and we should pray that they would do this as well. So the fear of God. Um, wisdom. Fifthly is wisdom. And Kaylee's already mentioned this, but First um, Kings 3 talks about the value of this. Solomon recognized it when he was beginning to rule. He said, uh, verse 7 through 9, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I'm but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon knew that he needed wisdom that he did not possess. Wisdom that could only come from God to do the kind of job that he would need in order to, in order to effectively rule the people. When Solomon wrote the Proverbs, who is he writing the Proverbs to? Have you stopped to think about that? The Proverbs are applicable to everyone. But who does he say over and over again he's writing to? Daniel. My son. My son. And Solomon's sons were going to be ruling. At least one of them was supposed to. And he talks a lot in the Proverbs about what it is fit and not fit for a king to do. So uh, please don't hear this and say, well, I guess I don't need to read Proverbs anymore. That's just for kings. That's not the case at all. It's just that kings are, or rulers are one of the people who need to have wisdom. And their role uh, has a particular need for certain things that wisdom brings that are necessary for that. So yeah, wisdom is vital. It's a vital component of rulership. Um, I want to mention one more thing, which is just going to lead us into a whole other section that will open up um, in times to come. But one more characteristic that they should have is mercy. Mercy. And that is found in Daniel chapter 4 when um, Daniel says this, verse 27 to Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Now, this is not something I was expecting to see when I was going through Daniel chapter 4 because uh, of multiple reasons. One, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that's necessarily emphasized for rulers elsewhere. It's not the kind of thing we necessarily think of for rulers at all. And in addition to this, there is an expectation that Nebuchadnezzar should just know this. It's not just like fearing his creator. It's that there's a reasonable expectation that a ruler would show mercy to the people who he is leading and that he's ruling over who are in need of help and who are having a, uh, you know, a, a really hard time in this way. Mercy to the poor. 
So there is a, an obligation that he places upon a government ruler to say, look, you can't just not care about people who are poor. You have to do something about this. And instead of uh, doing this, rulers would very often oppress the poor and they would take advantage of them and they would let them, uh, they would let them just be used for their own enrichment and things like that. Uh, so mercy toward the poor is another element of this. And we'll see how God's uh, law toward Israel puts some of this in as well. And maybe this will help us to think about the way that uh, the government should operate in our own day in a way that might be a little bit different than some of us would naturally do it. So those are a few things that government rulers should have. Uh, is there anything else that you can think of that might fit under this category? Yeah, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Can an unregenerate ruler actually rule righteously in a biblical sense? Um, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that they can um, have moral standards that align with what God says. Um, there's going to be some big holes in that and some major opportunities to do things that don't align with God's word. Because if your heart is unregenerate, then you're kind of open to whatever. Um, and so maybe your righteousness just comes from culture or when it's convenient or tradition. But at the end of the day, if you, if you don't actually trust in the Lord for your salvation, then you don't truly fear the Lord and you are not submitting in full to Scripture. So that just that sets a precedent of really anything is kind of fair game to not follow from what God's standard says. Um, so the uh, and, and yes, there is a difference between the way the Scripture lays out um, the righteous standing that we have before God and the righteous practice that we have. Righteous standing comes only through the gospel. Ultimately, nobody is going to be righteous of their own deeds. And then in addition to that, um, there is a kind of righteousness that's driven by faith as opposed to righteousness that's driven by various other factors. Um, so there could have been rulers like in, I don't know, they're, they're, um, I'm trying to think of someone biblically who was kind of an upright kind of guy, but, um, or at least he was morally upright in his practice in a lot of ways, but he wasn't actually a believer, but he was in a position of rulership. I mean, maybe the rich young ruler would be a guy that qualifies. He's called a ruler. He did a bunch of things, but he wouldn't follow Jesus. So he's kept the commandments in an external kind of way. Um, probably in many ways would have been a blessing to people that he's leading, but there could have been some areas where because he's not truly humble before the Lord, uh, it could come out in a lot of different kind of Un, you know, unkind ways, or there could be all kinds of loopholes in his character. So, those—I mean, those are just a few random thoughts. I don't know if that gets at what you're asking. Maybe. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, let me think. Um, as far as doing righteousness, I'm just struggling to come up with an example of someone. Yeah. Right. Do we assume there's a regenerate heart behind it? Yeah. So like the second Samuel 23, the guy that rules in righteousness, are we assuming that person is a believer and that righteousness is springing from that? Um, that's probably what David is talking about. 
Yeah, I mean, he, if he fears the Lord, I, I would say that that is uh, more fundamental. I mean, that's the root of that. So the righteous conduct springs from fearing the Lord. Um, and yeah, I can't think of anywhere that, and, and that's, this is just off the top of my head, but I can't think of somewhere where there's somebody who is said to rule righteously, but they are not actually a believer. Um, yeah, that, I can't think of anything. There may be, but that's probably as far as I could go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Stephen. Uh, should, how we should do it, I might not want to get into, but just in general, it is appropriate to do that. It is appropriate to tell someone, I mean, as, as Daniel did. Now, you see, Daniel had a certain in with the king, so that, that made this a little simpler and a lot less prone to, I don't know, the kind of like grandstanding and other things that I feel like often can happen um, through open letters and other stuff like that. But nonetheless, it, it, in principle, it is good and uh, acceptable to try to persuade someone or try to tell someone who is ruling unjustly in any way that it kind of fits in these categories that they are ruling unjustly. And that's, yeah, that is part of their sin. I mean, because that is what Daniel's doing. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, you, you have sinned against God by not ruling in this particular way or by, by at least sinning in this way and using your office to do it. So maybe it's something, like, the, the attitude would have been there anyway, like, not caring about this, but the office gave him the opportunity to mistreat the poor um, and not show mercy to them. So, yeah, I think it's perfectly appropriate to do that. Um, now, they, you know, whether they'll be willing to listen is a whole other matter. Nebuchadnezzar didn't. <laughs> it took a supernatural miracle for him to be humbled in this way. But, yeah, I think that's appropriate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that is outside my area of want to be expertise. So unfortunately, I, I couldn't tell you. You have to talk to some historians about that. Yeah, uh, but I, I would be interested to know. I, I, would, I would love to, to read about the, uh, the debates and the different reasoning if I, if I could make an opportunity to do that. Yeah. Okay, we should talk about what the government should do. What should the government do? And this is going to be, again, fairly broad, um, but I want to talk about a few things that the government should do that are either stated or implied by biblical principles and passages, and then a few things that the government should not do. So first of all, and we've talked about this before, taxation. Taxation. Romans 13, 7. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, 
Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, uh, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And then Matthew twenty two twenty one, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. As one person pointed out in a previous class, uh, this is kind of how the whole thing is made possible. There's no way for a government to function if there's not resources for them to function with. Uh, Taxation may be many different things, and we hear the phrase a lot. We hear uh, taxation is what? Fill in the blank. Theft. Yeah, people say taxation is theft. Um, There were tax collectors in the Bible that did steal by virtue of taxation, the taxation process. They took more than they were supposed to. They oppressed people by virtue of that. Um, Taxation may be burdensome. It may be unnecessary. It may be self-enriching. It may be a lot of things. But one thing that biblically it is not in principle is theft. The Bible does say governments, and keep in mind, Romans 13 was written uh, to people who were ruled by an emperor um, whose government would, to various degrees and at various times, mistreat God's people. And he still says that they are servants of God. They're devoting themselves to this, and this is why you pay taxes, because they need money to operate on. And if they don't have it, then they can't do what God has ordained for them to do. So there are, I, I, there are many problems with the way that people use those things. I we, we all get that, right? We understand misallocations of things. We understand the $600 hammer. We understand using it to fund stuff that we don't like, and we, we get all that, right? We, we all understand that people do not use those things the way that we would always have them to do it but but we do have to understand that just fundamentally it is not theft it is something that is appropriate for them to do so this is just what makes the wheels spin is being able to actually have the resources to do the job that's taxation is one thing that the government should do Um, secondly is laws laws the government should be in the business of laws of course this is the case but why should we have laws? Why should we have them? I mean, why have government at all? And why have laws that govern us rather than, we'll talk in a second about defense and things as far as protecting uh, your, your nation, but why have laws for what people within the thing are supposed to do? Yeah, Kaylee. Okay, yeah, so it, align, it sets a certain standard. That's right. Good, what else? Yeah, Tim. Yeah, total chaos, right? Without it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, what else? Mark? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, laws bring restraint. We save ourselves from ourselves. Um, Maybe a few principles that are behind laws would be protection of the innocent. When people have done nothing wrong and they're being harmed by someone else, um, you see this very much interwoven through 
the, the laws that God gave, the statutes that are more civil-oriented in the Old Testament, uh, concern that the innocent not be wronged, uh, protection of property rights, property rights where people have stuff. And um, despite the way that some people talk or think about it, there is such a thing as things belonging to people. Uh, certainly everything belongs to God ultimately, but because it belongs to God ultimately doesn't mean that it just belongs to someone who says, give me that, you know, um, which uh, this, is, this is a hard lesson for people to learn. There is a lot of, uh, a lot of envy in our world um, that passes as justice, and this is, this is just the way that I think our society, if, if you want my comment on that, I think that many people uh, think in these terms, envy, jealousy, other people have stuff, I should have that stuff, they shouldn't, it's not fair, um, they're privileged, I'm not privileged, I, you know, it's, it's not right that other people have advantages over me, and so on. Um, so they, they just want what other people have. Um, by the way, maybe even you could consider that there could be things that influence this in the way that uh, if you have children, I know this is going kind of way off it seems like, but the way that we teach children about sharing and the way that we insist uh, that people who want something from another child should have the right to have that thing for a while just because they want it. That may not be a great way to teach about what God says about um, people's possessions and the way to do that. Uh, if you want to emphasize to your children that they ought to share, great. If you want to emphasize to your child that some other child ought to share because they want to have that thing that doesn't belong to them, that may be a different story. So don't cultivate envy and jealousy and just taking what belongs to someone else by virtue of, you know, the kind of societal idea of, quote, sharing. Um, protection of life is something else that's here. Protection of life. So making sure that people are uh, not harmed in ways that would, um, would uh, be unnecessary or at least within reason to do. Now, obviously, we know that it's impossible to protect every single life in every way. But what are some laws that are designed to protect life? Can you think of anything? Yeah, so mur that would be the, the most obvious one, right? You can't murder someone. I mean, you can do it, but there are consequences, so it's, it should deter you from doing this. Yeah. Speed limits. Okay, okay. So if everybody's going some ridiculous speed, it's going to be a lot more dangerous out there. Yeah, so, uh, so this is one reason that they have those. Yeah. What else? What's that? Airline regulations. Okay, so this, yeah, and we're getting to all kinds of stuff, safety regulations and rules, all, you know, all the stuff that um, in many ways we find very burdensome, uh, the red tape that you have to go through, uh, all the, the stuff that's, yeah, safety requirements and even entire departments, and maybe some of you deal with this just constantly, like maybe half your job or more is just dealing with safety issues of, oh man, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to comply with what the law says about keeping people safe. So this is what a lot of this is rooted in, is protection, uh, protection of life, uh, building codes and standards and things like that. All, all of that has to do with, with that kind of thing. All the labels that you see on various products and all that goes into that. Okay, So protection, uh, protection of life. Uh, certainly disincentivizing evil, making it evil for people, to, or making it harder for people to do evil. Um, the, uh, I think there's a phrase in our founding documents, something to the effect of to promote the general welfare. 
to basically make things better for people. This, I think that that can align with some of that as well. Um, and then justice, justice, doing what is right, um, making what is right happen. If somebody did something wrong to someone else, the person who was, the wrong was received by them should not be the one who ends up suffering for that. The person who caused the wrong should be the one that has to bear that burden. Now, sadly, there are a lot of other reasons why laws are passed, and you may think that some of our laws in our country in this day are built upon this. Uh, one of them would be to make it harder for people to do good things. Um, another would be to sort of pay back or give a kickback to campaign funders, um, maybe to enact vengeance on your opponents, ideological or political, or maybe even just straight up to defy God or to gain approval from those who defy God. So a law would be passed which would enable people to more easily and more freely sin without consequences or wouldn't even make a benefit societally or financially or otherwise for a person to live in a sinful way. So these are some, some reasons that laws um, are also used. And, you know, people can use laws for all kinds of things, self-enrichment and so on. There are good and bad reasons to have laws. And what I want to do in the next lesson is to discuss the nature of um, what these laws should actually look like. So I don't want to really go into a bunch of specifics about these, what should and shouldn't be the law, what's our standard, where do we get that from. We'll talk about that as we go ahead. But laws... Um, will need to be written and enforced and judged. This roughly aligns with, of course, our three branches on the federal level of government, a legislative branch that writes the laws, a uh, judicial branch that judges the laws, an executive branch that enforces them. Again, I've mentioned before, I know that they don't always necessarily stay in their particular roles on that. The point is the principle that there are these things that have to happen with regard to this. Laws have to be written. Um, the, uh, the Bible talks about law enforcement uh, in several different ways. Luke 3.14 tells Roman soldiers what to do. Don't take money by force or um, uh, accuse anyone falsely. But he never says stop enforcing the law. When they ask, what should we do to repent? There's an assumption that the law should be enforced by people who have government authority. Uh, Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, talk about this, where he says, uh, in verse 4 in particular, the government is a minister of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Uh, an affirmation here of the fact that government can use the force and authority that it has to enforce the laws. First uh, Peter chapter 2 talks about this as well. In verse 14, it talks about governors as sent by him or by the king for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Once again, talking about punishment and enforcing of the law. When we talk about enforcing, we might also talk about executing the law, carrying it out, not so much enforcing and, and getting onto people who don't do it right, but in uh, executing the law, carrying it out, putting programs into place, uh, hiring people, all the stuff that all kinds of uh, federal departments and bureaucracies and things like that do, all of that is just is under the scope of this idea of just carrying out the law. So you have writing, you have enforcing, and you have judging 
Um, this, again, is implicit in the fact that there are laws. All the punishments that exist that are given um, presuppose people being judged in light of that law. Someone has to decide whether or not they are guilty. The only question is how that happens. Moses used to judge the cases in Israel before he ended up delegating most of them at his father-in-law's wise instruction, Exodus 18. And there are a lot of passages about how judges should conduct themselves with wisdom and integrity and impartiality uh, in the Bible. So laws are going to be there. Again, we'll talk about this more as we go. Let me give you um, a couple more. First of all, military or defense. Military and defense. We can talk about this later if you would like to. Um, I find the, um, the way the Bible describes military action uh, interesting in that uh, there are many cases where it talks about it in moral ways, right and wrong ways. There are a lot of cases where you might expect it to pass a judgment and it doesn't about who is in the right or who is in the wrong. And there is a degree to which it kind of just expects that nations are going to fight against each other sometimes. And that's not necessarily good, but it's going to happen. Um, sometimes it describes the wrong attitudes that people have, like Babylon coming down on Israel in the book of Habakkuk is described as something where it's an evil act. Um, the Assyrians coming against Israel in uh, the book of Isaiah and they are uh, boasting in their power, and God says, you're coming against God's people. You can't do this. So there are certain um, attacks and conquests that are described as evil, certain war tactics that are described as evil, the Amalekites coming out against the helpless, the weak, the ones that uh, they were just, they wasn't going against the military of Israel. It was going against just the people that they could pick off, and it was described as very evil. Uh, it's also presumed as reasonable that people will defend their land from foreign attack when the military of someone else comes against them. So this is just part of what the government does. The, um, uh, there, there are many other questions involved in that as far as how the government should carry itself out, to what degree should it be, like when should it invade somewhere else, what is the appropriate defense, um, all those kinds of questions. But in principle, the government should exist in part to uh, enable a military defense of the nation. Um, let me give you one more as far as just various other permitted activities. Various other permitted activities. And uh, there is one in particular that I want to focus on, which is the uh, provision, the, the act of provision for the poor. Provision for the poor. In Exodus chapter 23, there is an example of this in Israel. And... Uh, God lays this out, verses 10 and 11, Exodus 23. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Why? So the land harvests better next time? Well, under God's wisdom, I mean, there, there, may be, there is something maybe to that scientifically. And in God's promise, he does say that's how your blessing is going to come. And he actually sent them out of the land because they didn't keep this Sabbath year, seventh year. But the reason he says here is so that the needy of your people may eat. And whatever they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you're to do your work. And he goes on to talk about the Sabbath. But here he says, leave your field and don't harvest it for a whole year so that people who are poor and needy among you can eat. Now, I don't know how that aligns with your political philosophy, but you ought to try to fit it in there somehow. Um, 
Because it's not only there that it talks about it. Leviticus 23 doesn't just talk about this as an every seven year kind of thing. Leviticus 23 verse 22 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Now, we could get technical here and say, well, this is technically people giving to other people directly, and this is not a government program to do this. And that's true. But this is the government requiring you to do this. So the only difference is it's just not routing it through an inefficient bureaucracy and being so particular about who they decide that it's going to. But here, it is a government law that is saying, you're, we're going to require that some of what is yours go to someone else. And God is actually telling them they have to do this. Now, again, I just want to encourage you because I, I know that uh, maybe some of you come from a political philosophy that says this, this is not permitted. Government cannot take what is mine and give to somebody else. That is not right. God says that they can do that. He says they can. Now, there can be all kinds of ways where that can be misused. There can be wrong reasons why someone tries to do that. There can be people voting to try to get what is belongs to other people out of jealousy. And they try to, you know, siphon from one segment of society and bring to the other. I understand there are all kinds of wrong ways that that could be done. But we do need to allow for the fact that the government is permitted to take something from people and to provide for the people among them who are really in need. This is permitted. Um, and we need to make sure that we allow for this to be something that is possible, even if it's not done well or for good reasons sometimes. Um, one last thing here, and then we'll need to close. The, um, hopefully, with this and uh, with this example and with some of the other things, um, military being among them, we can rethink the way that some people that I hear them talk about the, uh, the role and the scope of government. So 1 Peter 2.14 says, Governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Um, there, is, um, there might be some who would oversimplify this and say government exists only to punish evildoers and to praise those who do right. And that is all it is allowed to do under God's authority. This is their sole purpose, is to punish crime, punish evil, and to praise people who do right. And I would just argue that that is a statement of one thing that the government can do, part of the government's job, a component of the government's job, but it's not the entirety, biblically speaking. And that there are more things that the government is allowed to do and told to do, in fact, um, and just to give you a parallel, when Jesus in John 10.10 10 said why he came, does anybody know why he said he came? I have come that they might have what? Life and have it abundantly. Okay, so would you take that passage and then say, you know, Jesus came into this world for one reason and one reason only. And that's the full scope of his ministry is to give people life and to give it abundantly. Of course not. What else did Jesus come to do? Like a whole lot of stuff, right? To bring the forgiveness of sins. He came to show the world God's glory. He came to tell everybody what God is like. There's a million things that Jesus did. So we wouldn't go to one passage and say, Jesus said, I came to do this. That's, what, that's all I can do. But people seem to do that with government. They say all government exists for 
is just punish evil and do what's right. And everything else, they should be out of the picture. That's not what God says. And that's not proper hermeneutics. And we don't want to interpret the Bible that way. So we can talk about all the things that government should be doing, all the standard and everything like that, and the way they should go about it. And we'll do that in weeks to come. But I just want to make sure that as we consider what the government should be doing, that it does expand beyond simply the enforcement of morality or of uh, crime and, and punishment. Um, all right, I need to be done. There's a lot more here. I know I've left a lot, a lot of ends kind of untied here, so hopefully we can get into these in the weeks to come. Uh, but let me pray and close this for this morning. God, thank you for this time that we've been able to uh, spend here today. Thank you that we have a government, and thank you that we have so many good things that come by virtue of that. May we not forget it. We pray that it would always grow better. We pray that uh, we would be used in the appropriate ways to bring that about, that you would help us to respond in the right ways, and that, that we would please you in that. We do pray that we would have rulers who would fear God and who would walk in righteousness, just truly do this, to have those who love and know Jesus Christ and who walk according to biblical wisdom. And we pray that you might, uh, you might help us to trust in you for that and that you would take care of us wherever that's not the case. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.